This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Zoe Daniel, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks for having me. Now, Zoe is the co-author of a book called Griefings from Trumpland, co-authored with Roscoe Whalen. It's very timely that we have you here today. Um, There's so much going on in the world and we're up to impeachment number two. So a lot to be said um, and I can't wait to jump right into this conversation. But before we do, Zoe's a three-time foreign correspondent and was with the ABC Bureau Chief in Washington, D.C. from 2015 to 19. She was also ABC Southeast Asia correspondent correspondent based in Bangkok and the African correspondent. She has covered politics, conflicts, natural disasters, and all manner of news around the world. Uh, Her previous books include Storyteller, a foreign correspondent's memoir like no other, and Angel, a fictional account of the 2013 Philippines typhoon. Uh, Welcome. Now, wow. Firstly, tell me how you came to, uh, to write this book. Well, I guess there was fertile ground for a book on Trump and it it probably was something that I started thinking about doing during the posting. But to be perfectly blunt, covering the Trump administration was just so completely relentless that I just didn't have time or any real brain space to kind of separate out what I might write about or how, how that might look. I was simply too busy keeping up with him while I was actually in the US. So it was something that I discussed with HarperCollins, ABC Books and my agent, um, Jacinta, in probably 2017 and it was just kind of sitting there uh, paused as a possible project. And then when we decided to come back to Australia at the end of 2019 or early 2020, um, it was an opportune time to... I guess, sort of deconstruct both my experience and also Roscoe's experience because Roscoe was the producer in the DC Bureau with me covering the administration, but also the impact of Trump. And that's really what the book is about, just how he's changed boundaries and and, and values and the way people behave and all, all sorts of entrenched policies and, and things like that. And how lying has become normal. But before we get there, I mean, as a, as a correspondent, so from my point of view or our point of view, if you like, and I follow American politics quite closely, I have friends in San Francisco, it seemed chaotic from day one. Like from the minute he got in, it seemed like, remember the mooch, you know, all these people coming and going and people fired and people hired and and the chaos, because as much as I disliked him and as much as, and all my listeners know this, you know, I'm, I'm definitely um, either a Democrat or definitely a Labor person through and through. And as much as I thought that, that he was 
it, well, firstly, I was so shocked that he got in, just like everybody else, or maybe not like you. But mm. I thought, well, well, maybe he's got to give it we've got to give him a chance and maybe he will work out okay. You know, maybe he has got the skills to pull this off. But it was very evident early on that perhaps that that, that wasn't true. Did you feel the same sense of chaos as a correspondent? Yeah, I mean, he he was elected as a disruptor. He was elected as the anti-politician. So in some ways... 2016 or from late 2015 through until the election was the most orderly period of the posting because it was the election campaign. So it's quite structured in the way that it unfolds with the choosing of the candidate, the conventions, the debate, and then you finally get to the election. It, it was after the inauguration, really, when Donald Trump came to office and he started immediately issuing executive orders to, uh, for example, prevent people from Muslim-majority countries coming into the United States, causing chaos at airports, um, doing things like pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The first day, as you'd be aware of the inauguration, we started to see that manipulation of information with arguments about how many people even attended the event, whether it was, you know, the biggest audience of all time, which it patently was not. Um, so the writing was on the wall. But, but that said, it wasn't particularly surprising in that that's what he was elected to do. In, in effect, he was elected by people who wanted him to be that person and, and he then came into power as president and, and started doing the things that he had committed to doing and, and to being that anti-politician. And, and my thesis has always been that to some degree he's deliberately employed chaos theory. It's, it's a very good way of keeping everyone running after you and controlling the agenda when everything is so chaotic that they don't have any time to actually look into anything else or have an orderly approach to how they're, for example, in the media's case, covering the presidency. You're the one controlling the narrative. Yeah, so do you think as a person he plans the chaos because that's what gives him the power or do you think he's just naturally chaotic? Uh, I think he's naturally chaotic and he recognises that that's an effective tool I think various of his staff have since said, John Bolton, uh, for example, who worked in the White House for some, some time, when I asked him, was there strategy behind what Trump was doing? He said, well, it's not as if it was an orderly strategy, but that it doesn't mean there wasn't any thought that went into sort of the style of leadership and the way to approach it. But it's not the, the kind of orderly strategy that you would normally see in international leadership, particularly in, in the White House. And, of course, that posed all sorts of challenges for the press um, when, as you say, you had a revolving door of staff, you had sort of a really dysfunctional administration where trying to develop contacts or even find out the simplest piece of information was quite difficult because it wasn't a traditional administration in that sense. And it's the same for diplomats. You know, people had to find other ways of, of covering this thing. Um, and I find it very interesting now that obviously Joe Biden's now in and it will revert and has already begun to revert to something much more like p people were accustomed to. So having been kind of doing something totally different for four years, 
all of those embassies and media organisations will sort of have to shift back to a more formal system of interacting with the administration. Do you know, I, I was I was only talking to a friend last night about, he said, could it happen in Australia, right? Because I think it was, like, if you, if you think about what happened to Kevin Rudd, that he was removed because, why? Because people thought he was a control freak, because people thought that, you know, he wasn't doing the job as well as he could have or as, as the party wanted him to do. Mm. Now, when I think of Trump, it, it seemed very obvious very early on that, you know, we were moving into a very dangerous zone. We had a person who was a president who really, I felt that chaos was becoming more and more dangerous. Did you think that? Um, yes, in some ways, but I guess with the job that I've had and the work that I've done, I've, I've learned to look at things from the other side of the box quite a lot. And I would say that certainly, yes, there was a there is a cohort of people, especially internationally. Actually, I think it's very different if you're in the country to outside it looking in. There was a perception that this guy's just crazy. What's what's Nuts. he going to do next? Yeah. This is really frightening. But at the same time, and certainly a lot of Democrats felt that anxiety. But you know, the people who supported him, the people who put him in there, we were applauding what he was doing. That's exactly what they wanted him to do, shake things up, do things differently, shake off political correctness, not not adhere to diplomatic norms, not just accept uh, entrenched foreign policy positions, for example, or economic positions just because that's the way the sort of post-World War II order has been. So I, I think it's... To me, it's dangerous to assume, although, you know, I partly agree with you that, it, that it, it's been a scary time because of the unpredictability, but it's dangerous to assume that everyone thinks that way because a lot of people loved him. A lot of people voted for him again. So although it was a convincing win for Biden, Trump got the second record number of votes in the history of presidential elections and increased his votes substantially yes, in 2020. Yes, but I, I agree with that. But I think what happened, and you didn't, we have to go back, do you think it could happen in this country? But let's go back there. But, you know, in terms of vote counts, I think it mobilised people to vote like no other. And as we know, more people voted in this election than they've ever voted. And as you know, more people in this election voted than ever have voted. But it is because the tactic they use of voter suppression. I mean, which, do you know, I, I, I don't know whether it's just me or because I'm ignorant, but, you know, I only heard that term for the first time about five or six years ago, well, pre-Trump anyway. And I thought, how can you call a country a democracy where, let's say, for example, that the only way the GOP could get in is if people don't vote? So I think that there's a real conflict there about his popularity and because I think people were mobilising to get people to vote because we wanted to, people to vote for the Democrats, then that brought in the GFP vote as well. And I think mm. that was more so than it was voting for him. Would you agree or disagree with that? Uh, look, I, I think there was definitely high motivation among Democrats to vote for various reasons. Yeah. Certainly, I mean, voter suppression is an entire podcast in, in and of itself and it, it is, is something that has been used as a, a manipulation tactic along with gerrymandering and a whole lot of, you know, dodgy uh, dealing around who votes. 
But I have to say to you that if it wasn't for coronavirus, I would have said Donald Trump was walking into mm. a second term, absolutely no question. It, it was the one thing, we talk about chaos theory and his capacity to control the narrative. It was the one thing that he couldn't control. It was the one thing that he lost control of. And, you know, if you look at the US as a sort of relatively evenly divided bunch of voters, that then pushed that Democrat uh, motivation up enough to get the, the sort of voter turnout that we saw. I absolutely, if you had asked me this time last year who was going to win the election, I would have said Trump 100%. Mm. Uh, it, it, it changed a lot over the year. And I think, you know, it's worth sort of considering the fact that it took a global pandemic to, to get him out of office in my mind. Yeah, wow. Wow, that's frightening, is it? Okay, let's go back to do you think it could happen here? I, I wanna one of the things that you talk about here is, you know, in the book is that it's a masterclass on using anger and fear for political gain, that this is what Donald Trump did. I would argue that John Howard did the same thing. Well, I think we've seen it over time in, in Australia and in fact in many countries over the last sort of twenty to thirty years. Donald Trump is is a populist. Back in the day, he donated more money to the Democrats than he, he did to the Republicans. He openly talked about being a Democrat. Um, you know, it's been posed that he ended up thinking, well, it'll be easier for me to sort of manipulate the Republican Party base to, to get into office. That, that may or may not um, be true. But, you know, you've seen what could have been niche candidates in Australia with fairly extreme positions get a lot of attention because those positions resonate with a particular group of people. And then those people, the Pauline Hansons of the world and others, have been able to really um, deploy extreme views to attract a particular cohort of people. So, you know, populism well and truly exists here. I think you, you see it in the current crop of politicians on both sides um, in the way that they enact policy, but also the way that they market policy is very much a sort of, there's no depth to anything that we get told as, as members of the public. It's basically about what this does for me. Um, it's all about me, 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 um, and very much the top line without any, any nuance. Um, but I think one of the big differences between Australia and the US, and this is something that is, is gradually eroding, is this the polarisation of media. You know, you have in the US a population of roughly 300 million people only watch, listen to or read what they already believe. So they don't get that range of views that you get in Australia if you turn on the TV or you read the paper. It's becoming that way here too. But I think that in the States, because you can talk directly to the person that, that you need to influence depending what media outlet you choose to talk to, it, the messaging is much more directed than here where it's a lot more fragmented. Not to say it couldn't happen here, happen here, but with a smaller population I think it's more difficult. Do you think we have better uh, political checks and balances? Well, obviously, you know, the Westminster system creates a more difficult sort of set of circumstances for the the cult-like cult of personality that the Republicans have chosen to adopt with, with Trump. You know, it's not all about one person. So it's a safer bet in that sense. 
in sort of the context of democracy. But but also preferential voting is a huge factor. You know, in the US, the presidential election is first past the post. Mm. So you don't get that sort of spread of the sort of most tolerable candidate rises to the top because it's the person that people least hate who ends up being the president. Whereas here it's very different because we're voting for a party. And, you know, the way that Australian politics operates, you wouldn't vote for the party leader because that person might be chucked out within a year. So you have to kind of vote more for the ethos rather than in this case. You know, we talk in the book about the fact that a lot of Republicans were very antagonistic towards Trump in 2015 and and even in early 2016 and really didn't support the idea of him getting even the nomination, let alone the presidency. But in the end, they saw that he was bringing the people with him and they kind of put their their misgivings on the table for the sake of having the power. But the thing is then they kind of lost control of both him and the party Uh, And I think, you know, that creates huge issues for the GOP Mm. from here on. If I go back to to then, you know, and when he was elected and that nightmare day where we were all just gobsmacked, I wondered at the time whether Hillary was the right person to go up against him. I quite like Hillary Clinton, by the way. She certainly had way more experience than he did. But also I felt that Americans walked away because it was between Hillary and Bernie, and that process I think is very divisive even amongst loyal parties. And so the people that wanted Bernie were disappointed, so therefore didn't vote. And that, I think... absolutely. You think that? Yeah, I I think there's two things that you've brought up there. One is this sort of perfect storm of having Hillary Clinton, the absolute establishment candidate incarnate, you know, a, a former senator, a former secretary of state, a former first lady who had spent her whole life really getting to to there, absolutely well qualified, not the greatest public speaker on earth, kind of is like giving a PowerPoint presentation when she's speaking Mm. to a big group, up against the anti-politician, the reality TV star who has the crowd twisted around his Mm. finger and also she was a woman. So that was always going to be, you know, let's be real, Mm. a hard ask. She's also, you know, Bill Clinton's wife Mm -hmm. and there are people who believe that she enabled him through his own impeachment and the Lewinsky scandal. Um, Then that sort of fed into lies that she was perceived to have been told around the use of a private email server, uh, the death of the US ambassador in Libya. So she had deep trust issues. They're incredibly wealthy. They're not seen as every man at all. And so there was all that there with Hillary. She Mm. was then up against Bernie. So you had a cohort of people in the Democrats who were with him. So the party was kind of split. And then when she ended up getting the nomination, that was perceived even within the party as an establishment um, manipulation of the system for her to get the, the candidacy. So, yeah, perhaps a lot of them didn't vote. And then she was up against Trump and they were just chalk and cheese. You know, part of me, now that Biden's president, part of me in hindsight thought, well, maybe he would have been a better option to go up against Trump at that time, much as he's an establishment candidate. But it's it's kind of two equivalent men of a similar age, you know, reasonably um, sort of outgoing um 
people who can sort of keep a crowd in a way. Biden's no Obama. But I felt like perhaps they would have been more equally matched. Uh, Hillary just, she came with a lot of baggage and I, I just feel like... But no more baggage case, It's a case him. of bad, bad timing. Yeah, no, no more baggage than him. <laughs> it, you know, it's still hard to kind of reconcile, isn't it, that Donald Trump becomes the, the sort of deity of the everyman when he's like a New York property developer with inherited money, lives sexual in a penthouse predator. in New York. Yeah. <laughs> a um, sexual predator yeah. who gets away with it time and time after time. You know, all his friends are in jail or all his friends are being convicted and that doesn't seem to matter. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cosy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And that's the next point that I want to talk about, that it has changed politics, I think, and it's contagious. I mean, I'm we're seeing it in Australia. I look at Gladys Berejiklian here in New South Wales. I mean, she would never, years ago, you would never have survived the two the grants uh, affair and the shredding of documents and her relationship with her criminal boyfriend. You would never have survived that years ago. But now, because it's becoming more common to not be as trusted is it that the electorate's expectations have changed or is it because it's so dogged and these people just aren't going to move? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And I think the, yeah. where Donald Trump is at now is is kind of an interesting case in point in that regard. You know, will there be any accountability for anything? I, I very much That's it. doubt That's it. Yeah. And and I think that it's it's almost an erosion of the public's level of interest or level of follow-through. The, the news wheel turns so quick now that, and we're bombarded by so much information that it's kind of like, oh, oh, what happened two weeks ago? Some politician did something and then it just gets caught up in the wash because inevitably something else happens and then something else happens and, and it, it kind of just goes away. And, you know, Trump... I think he's been also particularly expert at that. You know, his critics would describe it as sort of creating a dumpster fire um, when you've got one going here, you just create another one over here and then it diverts public attention um, and media attention very easily so that whatever the first issue is kind of disappears and, and never gets properly dealt with. And I think, you know, that happened throughout his presidency. And I, I do think that other politicians in other countries have one, either directly um, embraced some of the element, elements of Trumpism in terms of their deployment of the fake news 
um, excuse, their the, the sorts of language that they use, and also just sort of patting things off and never actually properly addressing it. Scott Morrison. It'll go away. And often the problem yeah. does go away. Often, yeah, yeah. often it actually does go away. And, you know, I mean, I in an Australian context, you know, I'm not really, I've barely lived here for 15 years, so I'm not hugely well-informed on the different positions of the leaders of the particular sides of politics, but I think they all do it. I don't think it's a conservative thing. I don't think it's a progressive thing. I think it, the manipulation of public opinion and this the sort of way that you behave in the public eye has changed on, on all sides of politics and they, they probably do get away with a lot more than they would have before, which in a way is kind of weird considering what I've just said about the amount of information and the level of scrutiny is much higher because we can watch every minute of a press conference on Facebook or, you know, we can be much closer to it than we could back in the day when the newspaper, you know, landed on the front lawn. Weirdly or sort of counterintuitively, the level of accountability seems to have dropped rather than increased it absolutely has. And I, I'll tell you, I say it. I mean, Scott Morrison seems to model himself on him and he, you know, he got away with just being, not being present to the bushfires and really just not being present is, is another factor there. But again, I think coronavirus, um, where it didn't save Trump, I think it has saved Australian politicians at the moment, you know, definitely uh, the premiers and, and the prime minister. But anyway, the other thing I want to talk about is the, the some of what I call almost atrocities that that man caused, like removing children from their parents at the border. And some of those children still haven't found their families. And I wonder how history will look at that. It seriously, I think, didn't get the attention that it deserved. And you're right, it just went through the cycle. In a way, that is... Well, talk to me about it. Talk to me about did you report on it and what do you, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I I agree with you in the sense that I think that that's one of the main things that happened during the administration that has had one of the worst outcomes. And it did get scrutiny domestically to a degree, as in the large media organisations were reporting on it quite heavily. But there was a huge amount of government control around access to that situation. So it was very difficult to actually try to expose or illuminate what was actually going on. It was a classic example of the administration just kind of doing something without any real planning or thought around how it would work. A huge amount of confusion between the various levels of bureaucracy, the state governments, the county governments and the, and the feds. And, you know, I mean, a report came out on this late last year which basically said that the, the approach to immigration of preventing people from crossing and then separating families was done without uh, due thought for the impact on children. I, I noticed that Biden has immediately set up either an inquiry or a system to try to reconnect these kids with, with their families. It's incredibly tragic. I mean, a lot of several people also drowned trying to cross mm. the Rio Grande on foot because they were too frightened to go to a checkpoint because they would be separated from their kids. You had incredibly squalid conditions in some of the adult holding centres 
And then we went to one centre for older children, teenagers in Texas, and they were sort of being held in the equivalent of of an army camp. And then potentially if they had a family member in the United States of sort of tenuous link, like a, a cousin or an uncle or something like that, they, they could be sent to that person. Other Others of them were sent out for fostering. I mean, it was just incredibly ill thought out. Uh, and, it, you know, if there's one story, and I don't like to call them that because it's like people's life, Um, But if there's one issue that I feel like we could have devoted more time to during the four years of my posting, that would be it. Unfortunately, the relentlessness of the administration with all sorts of other crazy things happening made it really difficult to actually go, okay, we're going to carve out time to actually devote ourselves to that. And I think that, you know, some of the larger US media organisations, particularly the like likes of Washington Post, the, the Times and CNN have really increased their staff during the Trump era to try to create some accountability because of the, you know, drastic under-resourcing mm. of media organisations the world over because of what's been happening in, in that industry over the last 10 to 20 years. When I think about his term and the fact that, you know, he remained popular until until he wasn't elected, although he thinks he's elected, you think about all the unkept promises, you know, the wall that never finished and that the Mexicans never paid for. The biggest one for me was, you know, dismantling Obamacare and saying every for four years, every two weeks, it's coming in two weeks, it's coming in two weeks, it's coming in two weeks. And even just prior to this election, it's coming in two weeks and it actually never came. Mm. Because the Republicans don't have a replacement policy. I no. mean, they tried to do it early in the administration and they they actually kind of tried to pause Obamacare, but they actually didn't have anything to replace it with. So, I mean, health policy is an incredibly complicated area. And in the United States, it is a complete, utter mess it's also a huge socioeconomic issue and so they just they have no way of fixing it so it, it's it's fine to say let's come up with something better and I, I think um you know even Barack Obama himself would say it's a completely imperfect system um, but it did get tens of millions of people healthcare who didn't have it before and it needs further reform and and streamlining and improving So Obamacare was a big one. Donald Trump's a real box ticker. You know, we talk about this in the book that, you know, a lot of his motivation is I want to do it better than any other president before me. You know, I'm the best. So he's highly motivated by doing things, especially better than Obama or rolling back things that Obama had done. So climate policy policy around renewables is one. Why do you think he loathed him, Zoe, so much? More than anything Uh, I think it's just because, uh, you know, Obama's perhaps not as popular in the US as you you might think. A lot of people are really disappointed in the, the Obama administration. But, you know, people who love Obama just just love Obama because he represents hope and renewal and, and positive energy and, you know, he's a fantastic public speaker, very inspiring person. And, you know, Trump presents that because that's kind of what Trump aspires to be. Trump wants to be loved like that. I actually think it's just as simple as that. I think it's base level, that he's good looking, he's got charisma and he's got all those things that Trump doesn't have, you know. Anyway, that's my theory, happy, loving relationship, you know, all those things I think came out. Okay, so 
I mean, we could all see it coming. Back in year one, I said to my American friends, he's not going to leave. If he wins, you know, I mean, that's not a problem. But if he loses, they're going to have to carry him out of the White House. Now, we didn't quite get there, but we got real, real close. Did you see it coming? Um, Not to the extent that it happened, no. I mean, what happened after the election, just putting aside what happened on the 6th of January, firstly, was to me the sort of culmination of four or five years of Trump, firstly during the campaign and then and then as president. All of the deliberately deployed erosion of truth, erosion of facts, outright mistruth, falsehood, lie, however you'd, you'd like to describe it, was came to uh, its conclusion after the election where he had, you know, deliberately built in the possibility that the election was going to be stolen, whether it be via postal voting, whether it be, you know, the way the counting was done, whether it be via suppression, whatever it might be, that the result, if he lost, the result would have been stolen from him. So, you know, he just deployed that kind of rhetoric throughout the presidency in various ways and then he absolutely mobilised it in the fourth year to the point that we got to the back end of the election and many of his supporters still today believe that the election was stolen from him. There's a, a phrase that we use quite a bit in the book, which is that Trump supporters sort of take him seriously but not literally and the press take him literally but not seriously. So the fact that those supporters acted on the idea of actually ransacking the Capitol or marching on the Capitol, in in some ways I feel like that might have even been a surprise to him because throughout the presidency people who supported him, as you said, we're like, oh, yeah, he says that, but he doesn't really mean it. And we'll put up with that sexist language or crazy behaviour for the sake of this thing that he's doing. You know, I don't really like his language on Twitter, but I don't think it really means anything. So we'll concentrate on what's happening over here. So from that perspective, it didn't surprise me that there were protests. The fact that people marched on the Capitol to, to the degree that they did did surprise me. The fact that they were able to breach the Capitol, unfortunately, didn't really surprise me because it's like this sort of trust that people have in government systems the world over. And I've seen it in many countries because I've covered lots of natural disasters and crazy things going on, is that people have very high expectations of the systems of government and bureaucracy to protect them in a crisis. But as soon as you push on it, it falls over often. And and that's pretty much what happened because they were drastically underprepared. So, yeah, it exposed some big holes, didn't it? Mm. I mean, you know, I read recently, I don't know if you read this, um, but I read recently that a lot of those people that marched on the Capitol didn't even vote. Right, and that that makes perfect sense. Yeah, wow. They didn't Uh, vote for the man that they're actually fighting for. Because voting is kind of like quite a formalised act, isn't it? And a lot of the people who would have been motivated to march on the Capitol are those the kind of people who really don't abide by 
not only big government but any kind of government control. So the very act of voting is kind of endorsing the thing that they just kind of don't really believe in. Like they believe in their country and God and country and all of those sorts of things. But, you know, the actual structure of the government in in their minds I think is quite a different thing. The, The one thing that I would say... And I think, you know, the book's not going to be comfortable reading for anyone. You know, people who like Trump will hate it and people who hate Trump will hate it. Um, But it's kind of, it's supposed to be a reality check. And one of those reality checks is, yes, he appealed to a lot of people on the margins and he really enabled a lot of people on the margins. But that's not the bulk of his base. The bulk of his base are ordinary people who want something different and they're not the crazy people who were marching on the Capitol. So um, like any cohort of political supporters on any side of politics, there's huge variation in who those people are and, and what that group is. It's not it's not motivated by one central thesis. Mm. And so we don't have time for this answer, but I'll, we'll have a go. What do you think the future is? I mean, it's... To me, and, and of course, you know, I'm in a silo because unlike you, I, I tend not to read both sides because one side makes me very angry and one side doesn't. So. <laughs> and to keep my blood pressure low, I, I tend to stick to that rule. So I do live in a silo. But there is a sense of calmness. You know, I'm feeling it. I mean, people, you know, coronavirus is getting the attention that it needs. Vaccines are getting the attention that it needs. The, the financial packages are getting the attention that they need. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out that things are changing and things are happening for all people, not just for people, you know, wealthy people or people with money or whatever. So the disruption maybe didn't quite work, did it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's really an open question, isn't it? Because we're only a few weeks out from Biden taking power. I think, you know, civil unrest or whatever you'd like to call it, sort of the sort of the splintering of a country, if you like, that, that takes a long, long, long time to happen. And it's very sort of evolutionary. And often I've found in journalism is that, you know, you'll have this period of bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger things happening to the point that you're like, surely that can't happen. And then the next minute it happens, like the the marching on the Capitol. Then there's a huge explosion. Then everything just goes dead quiet and back to normal for quite some time, sometimes several years. And then eventually it will come back up again. You know, I've seen it happened in, it's happening in Myanmar right now. And I covered, you know, the initial opening up of Myanmar, the release of Aung San Suu Kyi from 2010 onwards for four years. In Thailand, you know, where you've seen a series of um, political upheavals, civil unrest, coups, and it's still going. It hasn't actually settled. Uh, I think those 74-plus million people who voted for Donald Trump are not going away, and they won't necessarily see it in the same way that you and I see it, that, you know, the this the orderly transition of power, the, the delivery of COVID vaccines, all those sorts of things. I won't necessarily see it with the sort of goodwill that, that we are. Perhaps they will to some extent, but I think it's going to need more than that. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's all very easy to say, but it's going to require um, a really generous approach from the Biden administration to try to reach across to people who are their absolute polarised opponents to try to understand what is going on. 
you know, the the night that Donald Trump was elected, I was at Hillary Clinton's headquarters and there were people weeping and lying on the floor and it was incredibly depressing. And I spoke to one of her supporters who said, I don't even know who these people are. I feel like our country's been taken over by aliens. And I said, well, have you ever been to like Ohio or Kentucky or, you know, any of these inland states? Oh, no, I'm, I'm a New Yorker. So there was no, there wasn't even any sense of wanting to understand. And I think that a lot of people are really angry on the democratic side, particularly after what happened at the Capitol, and that's very understandable. But to sort of use that anger to say, well, these people are not worth interacting with is a mistake Mm. because it will only simmer and fester and then it will spike again at, at some other point in the future. Do you know I agree with you and we've got to go, but I do think and and Joe Biden would never have been my first choice, actually. But I do think if we're looking for economic stability and we're looking for stability just amongst us, you know, as, as citizens and, and, you know, to get rid of the divisiveness and the hatred and the anger, maybe he's the guy, you know. Maybe that that's the tonic that that country needs at this time. Yeah, maybe. maybe. I mean, Joe's a nice guy, Yeah, right? He comes I mean, across bit, as a nice guy. He's a bit yeah. gaff. He's a bit gaff prone, but you know, I think in his heart of hearts, he's mm. a nice guy. He's not a bad guy, mm. um, and he and he's going to try. But the thing is, it's going to take more than, and this is not simple. It's going to take more than members of the administration to try. Mm. It's going to take neighbour to neighbour to try. You know, it's it's got it's got to be people interacting with each other which in such a politically polarised environment and media polarised environment where you've had now people who were watching Fox News who are now going even further to the the margins and watching Newsmax and essentially conspiracy theory news, you know, how do you get those people in an environment where facts are now a matter of opinion? Do you know, and, and we do have to go, but conspiracy theory, I mean, QAnon, what is it? Is it? People are looking, is it that we've reached a point in human civilization where we're bored, where we're we've got everything we need? Where and I know there are a lot of poor people out there, and I'm I'm not, but it doesn't necessarily mean that these these people are people looking for means to live. It's looking for means to to kind of get out of where you are for other reasons, you know, to it's kind of like a worship scenario isn't it it's like what what religion used to do and I wonder why we've got that is it because we've reached this point where you know we pretty much we're in first world countries and we pretty much have everything and people put a lot of effort into effectively deploying conspiracy theories in a way that they don't appear to be completely as crazy as they are so until they get where, crazy, <laughs> where you come across it and where you kind of get pulled into it might appear to be initially quite benign. And also, although the likes of us, and particularly, you know, I'm a, a journalist, so instantly when something comes up on my social media feed, I'll be like, as if, of course, that's not true. And then I'll get a message from my mum saying, is that actually right? And I'm like, mum, no. But see, the people, there's, mm. it's not. It's not entirely gullibility, but it's like, oh, is this a trusted source? I don't know. So people will accept things a lot more easily than you might expect. And, yeah, maybe people are just looking for something else, something different, 
and they, they get pulled in to these groups, forums, whatever you might call them, and then it's it's kind of a, a rabbit hole that people go down and it's very hard to pull them out. And you know what it's all about in the end is trust, lack of trust in our leaders. And Trump has absolutely made that worse, utilised it as a tool, fragmented trust in the media, therefore no one knows what to believe anymore and everything has become frayed. Okay, you're going to have to leave us on a positive note. (laughs) (laughs) Are you happy to be home? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Tell me something nice. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm happy happy to be home. I was, you know, perhaps lucky to leave the States before COVID and although there was a sense of responsibility to being there in a way, like I felt kind of guilty, like I should have been there helping to explain what was going on. Um, I was very pleased to have my family out of there. And, it, you know, it's given me an opportunity to, because obviously well, I live in Melbourne and I was locked down for the best part of six months last year. So it's given me an opportunity to think about a lot of things um, and also write this book. And the book was quite a head-splitting exercise. But, but hopefully for those people who do read it, it provokes the kind of understanding that I'm talking about. And if we can only try to understand each other better, then that's a step forward. It's it's just a small step, mm. and um, something to, that we could listen. Yeah, to listen to perspectives that you don't agree with, to mm. to engage with people who come from a different world to you, mm. and then and then we can start to move forward. But if we don't do that, then I think you know we've got we've got a problem. Okay, I've learned a lot from you, Zoe. I need to do that more. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed that. My pleasure. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.